Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today on our panel, we have Eric Ostrich. Hello. Michael Reese. Exit signal zero. <laughs> and uh, today we have a special guest, Brujo. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. I am Brujo from Argentina. I've been uh, in the community for quite a while, and you can find me as uh, El Brujo Alcon. That will be easier for Spanish speakers, but sorry. Uh, everywhere, like everywhere in Slack, Twitter, whatever, uh, GitHub, you guess. Yes, and we will make sure to have links to uh, your social media uh, points in, in the show notes, so please check that out. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Um, so today we wanted to have you come on and we, we've talked with you once before in episode 31, which is a while ago for us. We've been going now over a year and... Uh, it was about your experience coming from Erlang to Elixir. So we're not going to spend so much time, but I did want to kind of, for people who may, uh, this bit might be their first experience uh, listening to you, um, kind of where do you spend most of your time right now? Is it Erlang or Elixir? Kind of where do you uh, find your development experience? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently splitting my time between uh, organizing events and things like that, uh, mostly for the Erlang and Elixir community and also working at uh, Adderall. And uh, at my job, uh, we have a huge system built in Erlang with many libraries and whatnot. So we keep working on Erlang like on a daily basis. But every new thing that we create, we do it in Elixir. And uh, we have two, three of them. Today, they are like still smallish libraries. Uh, smallish, it, it's small in terms of other, like millions of users, millions of millions of requests, etc. But they, in terms of code, they are no way uh, in, uh, in not not in even in the range of the big ones that are written in Erlang. So you know, I partially I, I work gotta, on those. Both. I was gonna say I love that that it's like oh yeah they're small but oh they have millions of users sure but yeah they're small in terms of like code. Yeah, I, I like that as a description for an Elixir and Erlang system. Yeah, and they are also young, so so they don't have that many legacy things or strange and uh, unwielding code as the other ones. So we kind of like the, like to work on them more than in the Erlang ones, just because of that, because they are cleaner, nicer, etc. Right. Yeah. So they're. They're, they're, you don't have the, so much legacy kind of baggage or, or mm -hmm. cruft. So yeah, that makes sense. I am curious though, uh, just about like the Elixir versus Erlang kind of perspective, like among your team that they, they're kind of having to maintain both. Are people okay with that? Are they happier to work on one over the other? Like you kind of mentioned in terms of code age they do, but I just in terms of language, do they have a preference? Uh, the thing is that in our team, we only have... I would say senior developers, and all of us came from an Erlang background. So I think the, the one that has the, the fewest years of experience has like five or six years of experience working in Erlang. So in terms of languages, we are still learning to love Elixir. Like we, we know, we, we get that feeling that it is uh, nicer, like, more maintainable or more easy to work on but the natural way to write things for us is still Erlang so we end up writing Erlangish Elixir you know no macros no pipes all those fancy, fancy things we realize that we can use them after we wrote the code initially so 
Right. Yep. I, I'm fascinated just because of, you know, I, I imagine that if I had a whole team of people who were already proficient and productive in Erlang, that the, the benefits of Elixir might seem very small or, uh, or, or not as, uh, they just, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have such a strong case to sell them compared to, you know, if I was coming from an object-oriented language where I can talk about, oh, you know, there's, there's not mutation of state, you have immutable values and, and this prevents certain bugs. That's how I'm used to being able to sell Elixir to, to a team or to a project. I'm curious from your perspective, um, you mentioned that, that your team sees some benefits in terms of maintainability. Can you give an example of um, what, you, what you think that your team will get out of Elixir over time? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is mixed format. That thing is amazing. It, it res resolves, immediately resolves all the styling issues that we have. Like, done. We don't have any problem with formatting code. Nobody argues for tabs, spaces, or indentation, or whatever. No more. That's, that's a great thing. And the, another thing is uh, the impressive documentation. We know our stuff. We know where to find the, the, the definitions of the functions that we want. But part of our experience as Erlang developers is reading the code behind OTP multiple times. Because many times the documentation is not clear or not enough, and, uh, and we have to actually go to the source and check what was the intent there or what, what is this thing doing. I've never read the code in Elixir, ever. The Elixir repo is black box for me. The documentation is enough, and it's good, and we can use it, period. So those, the, I think the, the, the overarching thing here is that Elixir is made to help developers a little bit, or actually much more than Erlang is. Erlang, it's, helped, it's built to help developers, but in terms of building great systems easily, or good, good, like very productive systems. And Elixir is also created to make lives of developers like happier. And that, and you can tell by working on it. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's a, that's a fascinating um, perspective that we don't hear a lot about as, you know, as, uh, for me, I learned a little bit of Erlang, um, you know, maybe eight years ago and, and also didn't have, I at the time couldn't find a company in my area that was excited to work on it. Um, and so I had lost interest and then kind of came back to the community through Elixir. And, uh, and like I said, all of my experience is about selling Elixir and really selling the actor model compared to threads and selling functional programming paradigm compared to OO. And, um, and so it's really interesting for me to hear coming from the other direction, right? Coming from, you already have those things. The VM is already there. You have introspection. Now you want to add on these uh, kind of quality of life uh, things, I would say, mixed format and documentation, things like that. Um, that's, that's great to hear. Thanks for sharing that. I did want to touch on why we brought you on the podcast. Uh, it's partly we wanted to catch up with you and see what's going on. There's, you're, there's a lot of things that we can talk about, but some of the main points are that we want to talk about uh, some property-based testing, how you wrote a review of uh, Fred Herbert's book, which we'll talk about. Uh, dialyzer is also a fun topic, but also speaking to this documentation point, uh, you had some interesting uh, blog posts that you've been talking about, like uh, with the battleground of Erlang, I think is kind of some of these blog posts. Uh, so I think those would be kind of fun to talk about as, as to why they're uh, helpful and relevant to understand these things. So as we jump into this, so first, maybe uh, let's talk about the property-based testing. So okay. on episode uh, 47, we talked with Fred Herbert, who is the author of the property-based testing book. Um, and so please check that out in the show notes uh, for a link to that episode. And you wrote a review about this. And so one thing that I think is helpful is you know, we get a certain amount of insight when we talk to the author about from a book, about from their perspective, where they were creating it from and, and everything. And then there's also value in getting the perspective from a reviewer or a, a user of the book. And so just, I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, what you thought of the book, how, how might I benefit as a, someone who might be interested in this topic and want to buy the book. All right. Uh, let's first start saying that I 
I'm not a fan of property-based testing. And I think that's why, that's precisely why uh, Fred uh, talked to me and asked me if I would be an, uh, interested in writing a, a review of his book. He knew pretty well that I was not going to say property-based testing is a solution for everything. You should start working on this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and by the time I wrote the review, I asked him when I first let him look at the review and tell me if, well, what he thinks. And he was like, yeah, it's very insightful and honest. So let's go with it. And, uh, and we basically disagree in uh, not too many things. That's a good thing. Uh, I, I do like the idea of property-based testing, but I, I happen to come to this uh, world of Erlang from Haskell. And uh, the library that's uh, described in the book called Proper, the framework for running um, property-based testing called Proper, it's an open source version of a library called QuickCheck, which is also based on the Haskell version of QuickCheck, which was the original one. And as I said in my blog post, I made a huge mistake. When I, was, when I first tried to use QuickCheck, I assumed that QuickCheck would replace my unit tests for good. And I could do test-driven development with, uh, with QuickCheck and be super happy about it, write properties and, be, and cover my whole system, et cetera, et cetera. And that was true to the extent of spending an hour running the, the tests each time. And that's not good for the student development. And, uh, and from that point on, I basically stopped using that thing. Uh, not, not in, uh, not in uh, Haskell, not in Erlang, Elixir, nothing. Um, when you read the book, you might get the impression that the, the same impression I had that you should use property-based testing to test everything in your system from day zero. He even, uh, Fred even uh, added a section to the book describing, uh, instead of test-driven development, say property-based test-driven development, right? A property-based development, I think he calls it. And I understand the goals behind it, but I think that should go with a cautionary note, like be careful of the size like of your system. And if you're trying to test absolutely everything this way, then your test will run like forever. And, uh, and that might be fine for uh, continuous integration or something, but not for your daily day, for your everyday life, like as a developer. It will slow you down, I think. Why you should read the book? Maybe because it's a great uh, topic to understand. It's something that when you, are start, when you start using, you feel the benefits immediately. You have to be careful, as I said, not to, not to go overdrive with it, but, uh, but, just, but as a thing, property-based testing is uh, certainly helpful, yes. So I think that's a, that's a good point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Just like, I think it's a human tendency. Like I've learned something new. This is a new skill, a new tool, a new something, right? A new, a new fangled hammer, right? And I just want to see all the places I can use it and I want to use it for everything. And, you know, like that'll be the same with like someone saying, I want to make, you know, all of my websites with React uh, when that might not be the best choice, you know, or all everything with, uh, you know, mobile development, even when that might not be the best choice. So I do think it's yeah. a good perspective to kind of just rein back that tendency that we might have to say property-based testing is awesome. There are actual real values that I can get from it. I'm going to use it for everything. So. <laughs> yeah. I think there are, there are things that benefit enormously from using property-based testing, particularly those that are exemplified in the, in the book by Fred. For instance, libraries that encode and decode things, say a JSON library, mm. with, with JSON being a, a very uh, small, like the definition of JSON is not too big, it's not too broad, 
but uh, but the the edge cases are plentiful, like are everywhere, and so property-based testing will help you find those much much better than if you try to do it by hand. Like there is no not even a point of comparison there. But if you try to do property-based testing for UI stuff, like I did, <laughs> you are in a lot of pain. Like really really in a lot of pain and for no benefit at all because the the main thing that you want to test with ui is that it behaves naturally it 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 looks good and it's intuitive for the user yeah you might find corner cases but how many of your users will hit that thing right and uh, and on the other hand if you spend a lot of time checking that thing and you don't put the the text box in the proper place where the people will seem will expect to find it, it's useless. So you have to strike some sort of balance there. So I, I talked with um, Brooklyn Zelenka a bit about witchcraft and kind of an interesting thing that happens in there is <clears throat> your, so it, it's trying to, witchcraft tries to bring some Haskell stuff into uh, Elixir. And as part of that, it's like the, the type system I don't fully understand it, but a bit of that is pulled in and it actually runs property-based tests on your types as like during compile time. So like one of the big things is that like when you first install witchcraft, it's like a five minute compilation. <laughs> um, so that, that's kind of, I guess, echoing the, the like, it's going to take you an hour to like run the full test suite. So that's kind of a, a, I don't know, a different take on that. Yeah. And, and also each time you introduce some new feature or something that you want to test it's not one test one more test like you do in unit test this is 10,000 rounds of new tests so yeah so that's a that's an excellent point i think we've uh helped to identify where like there are, there are situations where we don't want to apply this so i think it's worth then kind of focusing on like so I, I'm probably going to be using unit testing or, you know, TDD style, you know, unit and integration tests for most of my project. There are certain places in my project where I might want to focus property-based testing. So you identified one of those being like a parser. And really that, that is a, uh, like in terms of, uh, you know, web security, parsing problems are one of those things that become security vulnerabilities. So, you know, in a way you're actually using a property-based tester to fuzz your algorithm to see can it handle just garbage and does it blow up does it try to execute stuff you know uh, oh. so like, that's one aspect like if i'm not writing a parser i'm not writing a library what are some of the other things that, I, that might have a lot of value for me to focus on some property-based testing well another immediate one is when you're refactoring something for say performance because at the same time you want it to run i don't know faster or with less consumption of memory or whatever you also want to keep the same functionality as before. And since you already have a model there, it's very, very easy to write properties on it because it's just a matter of running the previous version and then running the new version and comparing the results. And that's it. And that's a, that's a good point. That's, that's a, that brings a lot of value. You, it prevents you from writing many, many tests because it's, uh, it's so simple, right? So, and and also, once you are you moved to the optimized version, you drop the the property based tester. Mm -hmm. Just drop it because you just know that it works. You you condense those things into unit tests or something like that, or keep it to the very minimum range of property based tests, and you're done with it. And uh, and you are not hindering your future development process, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. And also, if you're writing a library, if you're not writing something that runs, if you're writing a library for, I don't know, binary trees or whatever other thing, uh, those things generally have some very specific properties defined from the very beginning and translating them to properties in property-based testing is easy. It's even easier than writing all the proper unit tests to describe the actual properties, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another good thing to, to use. I like your point there that um, we can use it as a refactoring tool uh, or like, you know, when you're refactoring for performance and then you're not keeping around the, the property-based test. And like, 
to your point, I think it's, it's like, this isn't the kind of thing that we might have running in our CI with every check-in, right? Yeah, this you can keep it there, of course, yes, yes. But I might wanna just run the property-based tests uh, when I'm on, on, on my local development machine, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, let it run for half an hour or something like that uh, to, in, and not be something that's slowing down all of my commits and my CI builds. Mm -hmm. Correct. I think that's a, this is a great topic. And, and as I was thinking through this, there's one other area that um, I wasn't sure based on the description in your blog post, whether or not you might, uh, a, few, a few situations where you may or may not want to use property-based testing. And I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on a few of these. So if you were writing a library that was, um, let's say a database driver. And so it was, maybe you had a, a pool of connections um, something like that, and then you, you needed to do some translation of Erlang terms to maybe an on-the-wire protocol back and forth to your database. Is that an area where, where you feel like property-based testing adds value, or is that a, an area where typically you would prefer just to do unit tests? Maybe I would do, uh, I would do what Fred does in his book, where I take only the translation part like as an abstract thing, no connections to database, no pooling, no anything, just the, the translation part. And I will write some property-based testing just for that. So some properties on the translation. And maybe if it's like critical to the system, I would also, I would check if, uh, if, it's, if it's not uh, terribly hard to write one or two properties on uh, the statefulness of the thing. If you, if you're using a library for pooling, say if you're using worker pool or pool boy or whatever else, I would not write the property-based testing because I would be testing something that's supposed to be already tested. But if I'm writing my, my own load balancing algorithm, yeah, maybe. It will depend mostly on how critical that is to the system. Yeah, I think that um, that kind of matches, I think the way I read Fred's book, um, kind of gave me that same intuition, which, which is that uh, when, if I had, for instance, a lot of like transaction sort of functions that um, were supposed to contain certain properties about them, about when, when you see side effects or things like that, maybe that's worth a stateful property-based test. Um, and also th things that are low or low hanging fruit, like I can encode and decode and, yeah. and get back to the same thing. Um, could also be another one. Um, so um, another value that I've seen in the past around property-based testing is, is the mental process of trying to pick your properties or think about the properties or, or guarantees that you want to provide. Um, when I read the section in Fred's book about, um, about kind of property-driven development, that was almost the thing that, that seemed beneficial. So at the time, I, I took an open source library that I helped to maintain. I went and wrote some property tests and I found two bugs while I was writing, writing the generators because I realized that I was accepting inputs um, and not guarding against certain inputs that would cause problems because they should not be supported. And, and so I found two errors um, while writing the properties and writing the, the generators for those properties. But after I got the property test running, I've never found any bugs again. And they've run lots and lots of times and, and, and never helped to catch a bug so far. And, and so I'm wondering from your perspective, um, do, you, do you like that style of writing a property, kind of going through the mental exercise and then throwing it away? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think it, uh, it helps you define what you're doing, like uh, put that thing in concrete terms and think outside of just solving the particular problem that you have at that stage. So, it, it, uh, I think in, in some way it's similar to, um, to writing documentation, but not the, the documentation in the code, like external documentation. So you have to describe your system and what it, it does, not in terms of what this particular function does, but also what do you expect to, how do you expect the system to behave and that kind of thing is always useful, yes. A lot of this discussion about properties is also kind of, and, and Michael's experience with identifying some of these problems kind of reminds me of Dialyzer. And 
just that whole idea of running dialyzer. And I, I've seen some of the articles that you've written about dialyzer. So I would love to just spend a little bit of time kind of bringing that into this conversation when we're talking about designing systems. You know, is it dialyzer? Is that something I run every time? Is that, is there value? Do you find value in dialyzer and, or is it just a source of frustration? Uh, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> it could, because it's, I'll, I'll be, a, I'll be frank, you know, it's, it can be a little bit like the Erlang errors in particular can be very obtuse. Like, I don't know what this means. I don't know how to make this error go away kind of a problem. So just like, it just as we bring in dialyzer into this conversation, I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, lately, like in the last four or five months, I think since I wrote my article for Adderall on, uh, on Dialyzer 2, I've been talking about this quite a while. Um, in particular, Dialyzer is a, is a great tool that it's more comprehensible if you use it from day zero. It's, it's a, this is part of kind of a, an ongoing conversation I have with Stavros, the maintainer of Dialyzer, where if you already have a huge system and you try to analyze it with Dialyzer, what you will see is a lot of uncomprehensible, and I will use Sean Cripps' work here, misunderstandings. Dialyzer either doesn't understand you or you don't understand Dialyzer, which it's typical. But if you start from, from the very first day using it, every warning you see must be related to, can only be related to the stuff that you are now introducing, and that makes total sense. In, in general, when, once you are editing a system that is already fully dialyzed and has no discrepancies, adding new code, introducing new discrepancies, and the warnings that dialyzer produce in that case, they are not magically clear. The, 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 the spelling of the error is always confusing, but at least it points to stuff that, yeah, of course, I, I did that just now. So you, you have in your mind and it's fresh and you don't have to traverse all your code to see what, what's going on. That's one thing. Another thing that makes Dialyzer very confusing is that it's like, Dialyzer is like the, what's the, Oh man, I am the brujo and I don't know this word. The, the, the orb that the wizards used, the, uh, the magic orb, what, what's the name like of that? Like a crystal ball. ball. Crystal ball, yeah. The laser is that kind of the crystal ball. It, it basically tells you that there is something, but in critical terms, you have to figure out what that means on your own. <laughs> and, uh, and there has been some effort in, uh, in trying to make that clearer for the user. And one of the hidden gems in Erlang, uh, uh, an OTP code base, it's a, it's a module called Dialyzer Explanation. Mm. And, uh, and Dialyzer Explanation has a function that receives a Dialyzer warning and explains it. And the function currently returns not implemented. That's it. <laughs> there is no explanation. <laughs> it, it, was, it was created by, by one of, of Costi's students like many years ago. And she basically left the code there and moved to other things. And, I, and when I found it, I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, not in the last step. You put everything there, just explain the warning. And there's no explanation yet. So it's open. Uh, Erlang is open source. You can work on that if you want. You have the place to put your code in. That's fine. Uh, and the main issue, I think, uh, is that the Dialyzer, when, when it reports the warning, it, the warning comes after a huge investigation in, in, from, from Dialyzer, right? It traversed all your modules, compared all the types, built success typings, and so on and so forth. And finally, it found that this case, this second clause on the case statement can never be reached. And that's what it tells you, but it doesn't tell you anything else. And all the other context is important when you are debugging this thing. And I, and again, ongoing conversation with Stavros, it's technically possible. The, the director even has a, a GUI in an interface, a visual interface, like in the, wow. in the same way as uh, Observer. It's cranky, 
and it's <laughs> it has an amazing feature. I, I will I will let you like go through it once. It it has an amazing feature where the initial screen seems like it has no information at all, <laughs> but if you enlarge the window, there are there are content. There's the grid and some other things in it. It's, it's <laughs> hidden for whatever because it's dialyzer, and 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 that that interface has a place where the context can be displayed, but the code to do that is not written. So, wow, I had no idea there was a, a UI there. Oh yeah, <laughs> try try dialyzer. Uh, dot Looks like the function is GUI. GUI, yeah, that one. G U I. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's built with wow, the same. It's it's a WX widgets uh, window, like the the same thing as uh, Observer and all the other. Amazing. This is a. These are like two really amazing finds. The first of all, this module that exists in the code base that um, is just unimplemented, and and then this GUI that uh, that I had never heard about previous to this conversation. Um, and I think this is probably a good moment for us to point out that um, that you've given a talk uh, called. Uh, Elixir, or, or sorry, Erlang oddities, um, where you go through some of the some of the funny edge cases and things that might be surprising to people as they're writing Erlang code. Um, many of these also apply to writing Elixir code as well. And uh, so we'll drop a link to that talk. Uh, it's a very it's a very fun uh, it's a very fun watch. It's also very informative because someday you are going to run into one of these things. And if you can just remember that time that you laughed about it, it'll help you to get through the debugging process. And also, you'll probably have a better chance of remembering the right way to get past it as well. So, um, so I'll drop a link to that to that talk. Um, I'm I'm also curious. Um, you know, I think this uh, there's the there's this commonality here, which is um, both uh, type checking things like dialyzer and property based testing things. They both are about trying to help you find the logical errors in your program. They're, they're about helping you to reason about your program and know about edge cases or oddities before they occur in production. Um, what kind, do, do you have a process, um, Brujo, where, um, where, you, where you pick which of these tools that you use for, um, for a given project? Um, do you tend to rely more on one of them than another? Is it just dependent on what you're writing? Um, and, uh, and, and when you like to use those tools? Uh, yeah, I think my main distinction is if I come to a project, uh, if I start a project from day zero, or if I arrive to a project that's already been developed. So if I, if I start, if I get to start the project, I will put uh, my default set of tools there. Xref, uh, Dialyzer, and if it's in Erlang, I will use common test. If an Elixir, certainly X unit. I didn't know, I, I couldn't ever found a, a common test thing for Elixir, like a, a framework for integration tests. I, I don't know if it's, it exists and I couldn't find it, or if it just doesn't. Everybody uses X unit and done. And, uh, and if, I, if I arrive, to a project that's already ongoing, I tend to first work with whatever they have already, of course, but introduce these kind of things slowly. Um, for instance, there is uh, one thing that we created at Inaka, which was Elvis, which is a linter for Erlang, but uh, it's not as popular, I would say, as uh, Xref or Dialyzer or whatnot. So generally, when you come to an Erlang project that's big enough, they are not using Elvis. And the same thing that, hap that would happen if you just try to start using Dialyzer there will happen if you just try to start the lint uh, using the linter there. You will get warnings on all your modules, like thousands of them, and you will have to uh, make a decision if you want to create a pull request that basically rewrites your whole system or uh, do it in, an, in a different way. And uh, in general, I tend to do it uh, like incrementally. I use Dialyzer, XREF, Elvis, etc., and I add them to my uh, continuous integration pipeline with the 
with a particular thing that instead of checking, instead of running the license and verifying that there are no discrepancies, I let the, the pipeline check if there are no, no new discrepancies. So if in your pull request, you're introducing a new discrepancy, you have to fix it. But you don't need to fix the old ones. They will be fixed eventually. So as in the process of improving your system, you are also improving the quality of its code. It takes a while, and at some point you will see that you have only 13, 20, 50, whatever warnings left. You just remove them all, put the tool in place, and that's it. But you don't do it from, from the very first day because it's overwhelming. With the team that I most recently joined, I wanted to bring Dialyzer in because I've seen value in it, but it was one of those things where it's a large code base and there are a lot of uh, custom written macros by certain people on the team. And these macros were honestly written poorly in terms of uh, their type declarations, specs. And, and so they're generating thousands of errors uh, because these are like kind of core libraries that are being used and built on. So yeah, I, I totally see the, the value of starting small and being focused and saying, we're not going to worry about fixing everything right now. We're just going to try and uh, see that new code is, is better and, and, and uh, avoid some of these problems that we have. So we're not building and adding onto our pile. So Eric, we haven't had you on this uh, as a guest or a host on here for too long. You've been a guest before. And uh, so I, I honestly, I think, I don't know if we've actually mentioned that you're officially now a host on our show. <laughs> so welcome. <laughs> but I, I wanted to get your opinion on Dialyzer, your experience. Like I'm sure you've heard people talk about it and you may have even tried it. What's that been like for you? Yeah, so I think I I think I used Dialyzer fairly early on in, in my Elixir career. Uh spent the 20 minutes waiting for it to do that first PLT. Uh, saw 400 things pop up. It's like, no, these are all wrong. And then just like, didn't come back. <laughs> um, it's never wrong. And yeah. that, that's been proven <laughs> over and over and over again. It's never wrong. I actually got about 10 rounds of beer because of that. Because people told me that this warning is it's wrong. And I was like, nope. I bet a beer on, on you that it's correct. And, and they were, yeah, sure. And I got one beer in Poland, another one in the US, <laughs> and a couple of them in Argentina. <laughs> Never wrong. Yeah. So that is true. That's a good point that uh, Dialyzer um, will not show you false positives. It won't show you to say, I think something's wrong and it's not. So it, it's possible that it won't show you a problem that may actually exist, but it will never show you something. Well, so it'll only show you something it knows is wrong. Exactly. Yes. And so I think the problem uh, that we have as, as new users to Dialyzer is, is uh, kind of understanding that the error list that it puts out, uh, kind of the lowest error is where you need to start. Because like if I imagine a call stack and it's like this function calls this function calls this function and I'm looking at the errors on that top level function, really I need to like look at the error messages that were out for the, the deepest level of the stack and fix those. Yeah, um, the problem like, with the problem with that uh, that's the approach I take as well. But there is one particular issue with that one is that generally the the issue that's lower in the in the stack it's usually function whatever has no return and that means absolutely nothing. And so and so that's that may be too confusing for somebody that uh that just comes to it. it it would expect that function to throw an error or whatever mm -hmm. and the problem sometimes or most of the time is that that function with the parameters which will it is called everywhere in the system fails that's kind of the the, the, the summary of it it's not as usual it's not 100 percent of the time but most of the time, the problem is not the function itself, but the way you are calling it. So, yeah, yeah I ran into that yesterday. Um, I was just, I had an anonymous function and, and, and I'd upgraded to uh, Elixir 1.8 and I, and I was just seeing some new warnings come up 
not not compiler warnings, more like a spec type dialyzer style warnings. And they were showing, it was showing like no return on this uh, anonymous function. And I'm like, this is like the most normal anonymous function I've ever written in terms of its declaration, right? And, and so, but, but basically what it was is once I looked inside the body of the function, then I could see, oh, there was a situation where certain you know, values are gonna be returned and it's not going to match and it would cause a match error or an exception or something. And in that way, it would not have a return. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and so like, but I totally agree that, that as a new user coming to it, it's like no return. It's like, what are you talking about? It's returning a value. I can see it's returning a value. I, I tell you, 10 years ago, when I started using that, it says, this whatever thing has no return. And I was like, you are totally wrong. I copied that, pasted on the on the Erlang shell, and it actually returns something. What are you talking about? But of course, yes, it has no return in the context of your program and the larger PLT around it. Yes. Which is, yeah, different. So I, I think it's worth, uh, at this point, just kind of mentioning there's a uh, an Elixir library called Dialixir, and people should check that out. And one of the things, you talked about like, the explain function not existing in Erlang. So there's a group of people who have uh, made an effort to have elixirized interpretations of these errors that kind of give you like, it's not necessarily this is what your code is doing, but like, this is generally what this error means. Yeah, it gives you tips on how to, how to check what's going on. It's, it's super useful. Yeah. Yeah. So I encourage people to check that out. If you're, if you're interested in dialyzer and you want to experiment with it, then, Check that out and look at the explain ability that, that it has. Uh, I'd also like to throw in one other thing here. We, we've talked about a lot of the cases where dialyzer can be very frustrating um, as a new user, especially. Uh, I actually just yesterday had someone who's fairly new to Elixir on my team, and he was contributing to a project where um, he was making a new module that implemented a behavior that is defined as part of our project. And he opened up his pull request and the CI failed and it had two dialyzer errors. And um, before I had a chance to look at it, because as soon as I realized, oh, this is a dialyzer failure, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go look at it and help him like make sense of these error messages. But actually what he, what he found out is that there was a function where he knew there was a case that we weren't planning to support yet. And he had just implemented it with a, like a raise. So just raise an error if you ever get here. It'll blow up. It'll make it to the error logger. And we'll hear about it from an error reporting tool. Um, and, the, and so Dialyzer caught that and said, hey, this isn't going to return one of the expected types. Um, one of the expected types is an error tuple with, with a message. And when he changed that, it fixed his CI. But it also meant that our project knew how to, how to handle that error tuple and report it with some extra context about, well, who was trying to use that thing and um, where was this happening in the overall flow of our project? And, and so this was one case where Dialyzer gave a clear enough error message that someone relatively new was able to diagnose their own problem and make a positive change for our code base. So uh, I just wanna point out, sometimes Dialyzer totally saves your bacon. That's why a lot of us are talking about, there is value in it. There, you know, people should be aware of the initial pain um, but, but sometimes it really does save the day and it really helps to shine a light on something that you just weren't thinking about at the time that you made a change somewhere else in your system. Um, and actually, if it's okay, I'd love to go back. Eric, um, you mentioned you kind of got started on this. You walked away from it. Have you, have you come back? Have you had any other experiences since then? Yeah. So I guess it's, it's mostly been kind of up to now. I've been just like decorating functions with type specs um, just as a hint to myself. And if I ever have the documentation generated, I can see it. Um, but I've come like this close to deleting all my type specs, uh, probably four or five times recently within like the last year of, um, like if I'm doing a refactor and trying to like pull stuff out and there is some type specs in the other module that now it won't even compile cause I'm trying to use the type that doesn't exist anymore. And then I just go like, is this even worth it? <laughs> um, I, have like, I have something to say about that. Perfect. Oh, uh, when I was working at Dinaka and actually up to this day, but in a smaller level, I would say we wrote many libraries. We, we have uh, on GitHub, we have around 
in all the languages, around 80 projects, but probably in Erlang, say 50, something like that. A, lo a lot of libraries, right? And uh, without Dialyzer, we had the tendency to write defensive coding, to, to do defensive coding, right? So if a function expects an integer, uh, this, we don't know the users of the function. So maybe we should do a, put a catch-all uh, clause at the end and return an error or something. And that was all around. And someday we started valuing code coverage. And of course, all those catch-all clauses were not covered. And, uh, and they were actually useless if you run dialyzer. If, you, if, I, if I can give you the proper specs and write the function to only contemplate the types that I expect out, and you're a user of my library, and you still call the function with wrong types, it's your issue. You have a tool that will tell you that you're doing wrong without, like, without running the system. You just need to run the Eliza, that's it. And so all of our libraries at Inaka are built with that assumption. They all have specs, they all have proper types, they all have 100% coverage just for those, for the types that are expected. And they all say somewhere that if you're a user of this library, it's expected from you to run the Eliza on your code. Done. So I don't have to care more about that. And the specs, as you said, are also used for documentation. So everything is good. Yeah, I've, I've I guess I've found myself like trending towards uh, similar like, to that, like where it's just kind of more considering the happy path of like, I'm getting what I'm expecting, um, but without using it, uh, I guess all the, the dialyzer and whatnot. Um, and I, I guess I've been trending that way just because like, if it's, it kind of ties in with the self-healing, like just let it crash where like, if you're passing in a string, but I want an integer, it's going to blow up and there's going to be like a reason there. And like, then if, if you just let it ex explode and self heal, then you can only consider the habit path and like kind of shrink the defensive coding. So it's kind of, I guess it's, it's good to hear that there's extra benefits if you can set up the, the, the proper uh, type specs and whatnot. Passing in, remember that if you pass in to a function stuff that has the wrong type, it might crash, but it also might look forever. So not necessarily a crash there will explain what's going on. So one of the things you mentioned in there, I just want to touch on a little briefly is uh, you mentioned Inaka. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting, because like when I first started reading some of your stuff and like you talk about these libraries on GitHub that are under the Inaka, it's like, I got confused. Like what is Inaka? Is it a company? Is it not a company? Can you give us a little background as to what that is and kind of some of the, you mentioned that there are these open source libraries under the GitHub and Naka kind of brand. So can you give an explanation of what's going on there? Yeah. Um, so I will tell you, not, not everything can be shared publicly, but I will share what I, what I can. So basically we had a company many years ago called Inaka founded by Chad Depew. And I, I was actually employee number two here. And, uh, and we started growing in this open source community, in, in the, not in, in a one particular community, in the sense that we were open sourcing our, our stuff, right? And we had all of that under the Inaka organization on GitHub. We had libraries for Erlang, Elixir, Objective-C, Swift, and many other languages there. Uh, everything, we had that philosophy that everything we could open source, we open sourced it. And that gave us the chance to uh, share that code with everybody and also uh, give talks at conferences, even organize some conferences and whatnot. So, um, but eventually Inaka's life came to an end, a little bit more abrupt than one would have expected, but still, uh, and the abruptness of the ending of Inaka was helpful in a way. We were already all together in a company one day, and none of us was in a company the next day. So we decided to build a community instead. We, we, none of us was 
has the capital or the resources to build a new company. And some of us, we, we are already being relocated to other companies and whatnot, but we still wanted to be together. So initially it was just keeping the Inaka organization in GitHub and uh, Slack or workspace. And that was all for a while. But eventually we found a couple of things. One is that we tend to, we, we are like magnets. We tend to work together. I work with four ex-Inaka people. And I was the first to, to be an adult. They just come here, came here after me. And, uh, and another company works with two or three Inaka people and another one, another one, and all around the place. And it's not like we live in the same place. We have people from Colombia, Brazil, from even Spain, whatever. We just like to work with each other. And whenever somebody hears in his company that, hey, we're looking for another developer, generally just post it on our Slack. And sometimes, boom, you have, a, you have another friend there. And since we are kind of all connected, we started, uh, we decided that, yeah, we are not hiding people anymore. So the, com the community will never grow. So we decided to make it grow and we open the doors. So if you wanna be an Inaco, there is a way. You can check the guidelines on our website or you can go to inaka.github.io or just contact me. And, uh, and there is a smallish process there, but just to check that you are a real human and, and that you are trying to contribute something and you join us. We have about, 10 people joining the community in the last few months. And, uh, and basically what we do is we keep uh, our libraries up to date. We solve issues, we create new pull requests, we review code, we do maintaining of the open source libraries. We also organize events and conferences. So one of my hobbies is to organize stuff for people. I've been doing that for ages, since I was 15 years old. And, uh, and I found that it's hard to do it like on my own, especially if I don't actually work on that, that doesn't pay my bills. So uh, I asked Inaka folks if somebody wants to help me and we organized an online conference. We organized a spam fest every year with Marcos and Juan. We, we organized ElixirConf uh, Latin America now with Carlos and some friends of him, and so on and so forth. So uh, the, I organize a meetup, a couple of other folks organize their own meetups, like three or four we have. And uh, so open source, sharing, and everything as a hobby. Like there is no money involved in this thing. I, I just would love to jump in and just say, this is to me this is a super exciting idea because um people have for a long time talked about that one of the difficulties of open source is um is the maintenance aspect right it's uh, it can be frustrating if at a company you pick up a library you pull it in your system and months later you find out there's something in there and the person who originally wrote that library has moved on. They're not using it anymore, right? I've been this person before. I, I write, write a library. It's super useful to me, but I move on from that job or that project or whatever. And then two years later, I find out about an issue that someone's having using it. And, and I can help out a little bit, but I don't have a lot of time to devote. I love this idea. That's, it's kind of in between. It's, it's not a company that's supporting the open source. It's not an individual. It's, uh, it's sort of a, it's a group of friends, right? And, and it sounds like there's this really strong emphasis on just the friendship. It's, it's not, um, you're not trying to coerce people into the group or anything like that. It's just about, oh, these are people who happen to all like working together anyway. Let's just share some efforts and that will help all of us to have a higher quality on these, on these libraries. And I wanted to point out that as I'm reading through the list of repos, there's a uh, rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock world championship written in Erlang. Uh, you also have one called Sheldon, which is a very simple Erlang spell checker. <laughs> yep. And uh, so these are also, there's like a kind of playfulness here. And, uh, and I think it also sounds like 
anyone who is trying to recruit, uh, they should maybe talk to this group because this is maybe a chance that you can leverage your recruiting efforts to get not just one, but maybe a few friends uh, into your organization. So yeah. um, along with that, I also just wanted to say thank you for all the, all the organization you've been doing, the fact that you write a lot of blog posts, you, you do a lot of conference talking, um, I, I think you're, you have contributed in a major way to the Erling and Ecos and kind of uh, Elixir ecosystem. You, you've made this better for all of us. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, I think we're coming up to our time. Is there anything else you want to mention or make sure you, you talked about? I know you have a couple events that are coming up uh, that you might want to be able to put on people's calendars. Like uh, you want to talk about those briefly? Yeah. Uh, the first one is Spawnfest. It's uh, last year, I was here, right? Like I recorded the episode before SpawnFest and SpawnFest happened and the episode was published afterwards. And we jokingly said, hey, it was amazing, incredible, whatever. And actually it was. Yeah, it, it actually sounded natural. That was <laughs> impressive. And this time, this time you still have time to join the, the contest. You still have time to win stuff. And this year we have, major sponsors. Last year, we had a bunch of companies from Argentina, Airline Solutions, that's always sponsoring us. It's, it's been a friend since day zero, and, uh, and some others. This year, we have uh, DigitalOcean as a sponsor. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Derif Co. as a sponsor, Airline Solutions as well. So the, we don't have yet decided the, on, the, on most of the prices, but there are big ones. Like, $500 uh, or more each one. And, uh, and if you don't do it for the money, like I, I never did, it's a very funny experience because it's a worldwide hackathon. So you are at home, but you are connected with everybody in the world. From the, from the organizer perspective, it's impressive to see how people uh, awake, uh, goes awake and goes to sleep and there is always somebody working. Last year, we had people from uh, all the way, like from New Zealand, from uh, Angola, from uh, India, uh, Ukraine, uh, the United States, of course, Brazil. The winners were from uh, Argentina. So it's all over the world. You only need an internet connection and a group of friends. You have, to, you have 48 hours to develop something new using Erlang, Elixir, or if you feel brave, you can use Closure or FN, doesn't matter. And the judges will evaluate that thing for a month and the winners will get prizes. That's it. And this year we have one particular addition to be able to see, the, to watch the progress on the, on the different projects as they progress. Uh, we hope that that's not too much pressure for the participants, but uh, it will be fun for everybody. It, from by like I, I was watching those things last year, and every time I wanted to share something on Twitter or whatever, it was like, oh, crap! It's a private repository. I can't. So this year, you will see a lot of spam from me on September 21 and 22. And the other event is uh, ElixirConf Latin America. That's happening on October 24th and 25th, and it's happening in Medellin one of the most advanced cities in this side of the world. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a beautiful city. And it also, uh, it will be a big event because um, we, have, we, we will have Andrea Leopardi doing a keynote. Uh, Veronica Lopez, maybe you know her as Maria Fibonacci. And uh, myself, and Francesco Cesarini, and Carlos and many others. And we opened the call for talks, and we have still three spots left. But we also already have more than 20 applicants for talks. So if you want to be a speaker here, like make a great presentation, you have until uh, July 19th to, to join us. Talks will be in Spanish, and the ones that are in English, we will have a translator for those. Um, and what else do I have to say? Oh, okay, and early bird tickets are on sale. Yeah, elixirconf.la, the first, the first Latin American elixirconf. That sounds amazing. Both of those look like really awesome and fun events to go to. 
yeah, one day I will I will add sales pitch to my to my resume. Yeah. <laughs> well, as an organizer of of events, you kind of have to be the marketing kind of sales kind of side of it. Oh yeah, and no one's and gonna I, know about it. Yeah, and I am the one that do, does the cold calling for sponsors, and let me tell you that's the hardest part <laughs> of organizing any event. Wow. All right. Well. Let's, uh, let's, I think that's an awesome topic there. Uh, I, I encourage people, especially if you are in uh, the Latin America area or Spanish speaker, uh, check out those conferences. Um, and SpawnFest is open to everybody. Uh, I do remember last year, that was uh, an exciting thing. I was kind of watching the Twitter stream of what was going on as things were happening. It looked exciting and fun. So yeah, I encourage people to check that out. But uh, let's move to picks. All right, Michael, do you have something you can share? Uh, this, this week, not a lot of picks. Um, I w actually had a lot of fun this last week, uh, just building things out of, um, Dollar Tree foam board. So I don't know if this exists in other parts of the world, but, um, it's somewhat, uh, common in the United States that if you go to a kind of a store called the dollar store, they have these pieces of foam board. Sometimes people use them as like science project presentations. Um, if you've ever done that kind of a thing before, but it turns out that uh, in a way that's kind of similar to cardboard, you can just kind of make whatever. And so I, me and my son spent some time cutting them up, taping them together and trying to make a boat. And then we tried to put a motor on that boat. It all went terribly wrong multiple times, um, but resulted in a lot of fun and just being outside. Um, and uh, other than that, I pretty much spent my entire week following up on uh, on the picks that other people have made in the last few weeks of this show. So uh, I guess I'll pick Elixir Mix and, uh, and following up on our picks. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Eric, do you have something? Yeah, so I'll, I will... Um, so this, this one's going to be pretty niche, but uh, I think it's still fun. So one of my uh, pretty big side projects is running a, a site called Grapevine, which is uh, for... MUDs, so text-based games and whatnot. And the thing that I want to specifically pick is I have a Telnet parser <laughs> uh, written in Elixir. Um, so most people probably don't need this. Uh, hopefully you don't. <laughs> um, but it's still it was still cool to like write and like read. I mean, I guess it was as fun as reading RFCs can be, but um, like seeing the specs and then trying to translate that into Elixir um, and if you're a fan of binary pattern matching, uh, there's a lot of it in this. So that's something to, to, to read through. And I feel like there will probably, out of all my projects, uh, something, uh, the one that could add property-based testing to is probably this one, <laughs> uh, since it's take like, it's a parser, right? So it's taking the, the, the binary data and transforming it. So, um, uh, that might be in my future. Yeah. Nice. All right. I have uh, two picks. One, this came from Brujo he, in his talk. So he, he gave a talk about um, kind of the Erlang oddities and some of the fun things he kind of learned along the way. And in that, he mentioned this other uh, video that I had never seen before uh, from destroyallsoftware.com. And I'm going to include that. It is a five-minute video. It's called What? Like W-A-T, like... And it's just funny little facts and kind of things that you run into with Ruby and JavaScript. And just like, did you, you know, like if, if you do this, you know, this, if you exercise your code this way, it does this. And if you do this and something completely different and just kind of like, everybody does it in a really humorous way, super fun. And you learn something in the process. So that was a fun one. Uh, the other one that I was going to give is if you are a Netflix subscriber, there is a show that came out. Um, if you haven't already seen it, it's called I Am Mother. And it is a sci-fi show. It, it's a movie. It's not a TV show. It's a movie. Uh, I've, I've kind of, the idea is you shouldn't watch the trailer. It gives away too much. But it's a post-apocalyptic future where humanity is wiped out and a robot is raising a human child in a repopulation facility. And it's really awesome. Uh, I, I loved it. It's very thought-provoking. But it's like one of those things, it's one of, one of those movies where they don't overly explain things to you. So you'll see these little details. And if you don't catch it, then you, you might be kind of left scratching your head a little bit. So then there are plenty of guides online where people kind of explain 
what some of the, the, those little statements and things mean. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed that one. My wife enjoyed it too. So that's mine. Brujo, do you have something? Yeah, I have actually two picks. Um, one is something that, uh, for whatever reason, I thought everybody knew, but it seems not. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked on the Erlang questions mailing list uh, where to start for reviewing stuff or learning stuff about Erlang. And one of the people at the Inaka community has uh, created a website that looks nothing like uh, Erla, an Erlang website. In other words, it's beautiful. And it's called uh, Spawn Shelter. So that, that, goes, uh, that, that one is a, it's a great place to find uh, references, books, videos, and whatever else about uh, Erlang mostly, but also Elixir. So check it out. It, it was created by uh, Federico Carrone. And the other one, it's related to dialyzer. At some point, I, I was talking with uh, Stavros about some dialyzer stuff. Uh, and he said, hey, actually, there is a book, there is a, a paper, sorry, written about dialyzer and explaining the errors. And he gave me a PDF. The first, I think, 10 pages are written in Greek. So if you, if you, if you understand Greek, great for you. But he told me to, to move after that, and there is an English section. And at the very end of the document, you have about five examples of strange Erlang warnings, uh, sorry, dialyzer warnings, and their proper explanations. And those things happen a lot. So, so that will uh, trim a lot of time from your debugging uh, once you, you get those examples right. So. Uh, that the link is in in the comments. Awesome, that's great. So, uh, well, I had a lot of fun, Brujo, talking to you today. And so, if people, you already mentioned ahead, um, kind of where you can be found online. But if people do want to follow you or uh, get in touch with you to have more, uh, you know, maybe they want to talk about Inaka or something about the conferences you're organizing, where would you direct them to? So I am uh, El Brujo Alcon everywhere. I am El Brujo Alcon in Twitter. I am a Brujo Gun in the Erlang Slack, in the Elixir Slack, in the Elixir Forum, and on Skype, Telegram, whatever you want to use. Just uh, go to whatever platform you want. El Brujo Alcon, it's E-L-B-R-U-J-O-H-A-L-C-O-N. Much easier for the Spanish speakers. <laughs> yes, awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Bruja. That was fun. And uh, thank you for listening today. And that's it. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.